the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Friday morning. In the studio with me so far is Hannah Webb Howard, and we're expecting Chris Corbett to join us shortly as well. Hannah, welcome to the Dave Ellswick Show. How have you been? Great. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. It's been a minute. It has been, indeed. Of course, Hannah uh, was my student. Uh, Nonetheless, she survived law school. And Hannah was also my research assistant while in law school and then insisted on continuing thereafter uh, when I told her that she must. Uh, And she is now, uh, has been assisting me in producing the new version of my book on the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act. I say my book because for those of you that are familiar with the book on the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act, it was co-authored, and I was the third co-author, meaning the the last to join the project. But when I joined the project, both of my co-authors said that they were looking to transition off of the book. One is retired. uh, Both have left the state. And so they were not as interested, needless to say, in Arkansas's Freedom of Information Act. And they said, we want to hand it off to you, Rob. We'll stay on for one more uh, iteration. And I really wanted that to be the case. It was in part at my desperate request. And they happily agreed, mind you. But they said, thereafter, we're out. It's all yours. And so the version that Hannah and I worked on and recently finished, uh, I am the sole author on. And it's coming out through a national publisher, uh, Lexis Uh, publishing, which is a legal publisher for those who don't know and shouldn't know, mind you. But if you're inside the business, you you would know that quite well. So we're very proud of that product. And uh, Hannah works at, what's what's the full name of the law firm you work at? Gil Reagan Owen. Gil Reagan Owen. And uh, Hannah is their uh, in-house expert on the FOIA. Whether or not they know it, and I think they know it, but whether or not they know it, because having worked with me on this project, you have no choice but to really become an expert on the FOIA. It's remarkable, the Freedom of Information Act, how intricate it is, and the only way you're going to learn it is by going through it and going through it and going through it. And uh, Hannah has done that, and it's wonderful uh, to have her assistance on the book. And uh, to be able to talk with her about Freedom of Information Act issues. Uh, Folks, as you know, listeners to the Dave Ellswick Show, I welcome people to contact me. You can contact me through Facebook. You can uh, contact me uh, on my uh, 
my phone at uh, 501-ATTY, like attorney, ATTY804, and you can text me there, and I'm happy to help folks out uh, with Freedom of Information Act questions. I do so routinely, I must have done at this point in my career, thousands of times. I mean that quite literally. Uh, And there was an article in the newspaper recently, Hannah, where... Each of the 75 counties in Arkansas have had requests made for election data. And I've been involved in that, needless to say. Meaning I haven't made any of those requests, and I'm not interested in making those requests one way or the other. It's just, i got enough going on, right? But uh, the people that are making those requests were stonewalled initially. Surprise, surprise. And so they contacted me, and they copied me, indeed, when they were making these requests, and what response did they typically initially get from these county clerks? Well, we never printed out any of those rec- any of that data, and having not printed it out, it's not a record, and you can't request it. That's entirely wrong. It, if it, the only way it could be more wrong is if it was coming back around on right. That's how wrong it is, right? So, if any government entity has data in a database. You're allowed to request that data in any format that they can print it in. Oh, I want only these, this data, or I want it in these columns, um, because it exists already. And printing it out in the format that you want, no less, is not creating a record. It's providing a record, because the law doesn't mandate the creation of a record. This is not an interrogatory. You can't say, write down all the names of the people you met yesterday. Well, if I didn't write it down, it ain't a record. But you can say, print out for me. All the data regarding this election in the following format, because that already exists. And I educated a number of these county clerks on that, and then they printed out. Now they're coming back, some are, and they're saying, oh, we don't have it. They're just claiming they don't have it. Now, here's the difficulty with the Freedom of Information Act. When an agency says they don't have the data, how can a requester respond to that? Oh, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. It's not a... Valid claim in court. I have a case against, for my client to be clear, uh, um, against the sheriff here in Pulaski County, Eric Higgins, who, by the way, is incompetent and needs to be booted out. And hopefully Blue Keller will beat him in this election. If you want to vote for safety and security, you better vote for Blue Keller uh, because Eric Higgins is too busy giving yoga mats and popcorn uh, to the prisoners while they are all jammed overcrowded into a single room so he's worried about them uh, doing exercise and then he's spreading covid amongst them uh, I, i've never seen a higher level of incompetence uh, firsthand uh, in law enforcement than i have seen in eric higgins uh, so he, he he's got to go folks make sure you vote this november and make sure you vote for blue keller uh so we made FOIA requests my client did, to be, to be clear, uh, made FOIA requests of uh, Sheriff Higgins and delay, 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 which is typical. We sue. Still delay, delay, delay. The day we have the hearing, which is about a month after the lawsuit, we get an information dump. Right? Why? Because they don't want to go into court and say, we ain't, we ain't giving over the records. So they give it. By the way, they claim they do it, gave it that morning, and I tell the court, I believe them. 
you know, of course, if they, it turns out they didn't, we'll tell the court. So I tell the court, I believe him. And the court says, okay, well, then we'll dismiss the case because it sounds like you got everything. We didn't, by the way, get everything. We got most of it the next day or a good portion the next day. Now, that doesn't much matter to me, but it's a, kind of a little bit of, you know, inaccuracy. That it's, it's just, it, it's grading. And then there was one video they claimed they had given us and they never gave us. And I, I had to search around and say, wait a second, we were supposed to get a video of some sort. Oh, oh, uh, our mistake. None of that's my job. I don't need to do the government's job. Yet I have to chase him down for the records time and time again. And so now we went in and we made a motion for attorney's fees and they said, oh, well, they didn't win. Uh, Steinbuck and his client didn't win because the case was dismissed. Now that's disingenuous. That's downright disingenuous. We won because you gave us all the records and you did it on the courthouse steps because you were afraid. You were afraid. And the final point I'll make before I let you open your mouth is that when I make a FOIA request in the state of Arkansas, people now know, if you don't give it, Steinbuck's going to sue you. Because I'm not full of hot air. Too many attorneys make a lot of bluster. They send letters back and forth. I don't send letters back and forth. I send one letter. I will send a letter or an email in these days, you know, the letter is electronic. Say, you didn't do what you're supposed to do, do it. And if people don't, I sue and we're going to talk in a, in a few moments about guns at your... You went to ASU, right, undergrad? Correct. Yeah. We're going to talk about guns at ASU in a few minutes. But in any event, so with all that background, what are your thoughts on the FOIA? What are your thoughts on the operation of the FOIA here in Arkansas? Do you, have you had any experience with it yet in practice? Yes, I have had experience. So FOIA is one of those staples as a conservative or just a citizen that everyone should be concerned with because they are one of the first lines of defense on checks on government. So it's, it's the people's first line of defense in exercising their rights to vet and change and vote out um, or take issue with policies and people and procedures that are happening in their government. So first line of defense. And it's one of the most accessible to them Generally, assuming they don't have to suit it what they want. So I have had experience, and interestingly, on both sides of the coin. So I practice both for people who are potentially subject to FOIA or perhaps receiving FOIA requests, and then also routinely make FOIA requests, not necessarily as in my personal role and zealousness as a conservative advocate, just in my as a tool in my belt as a practicing attorney, irrespective of my own personal feelings or bias on either issue. Um, And that's what's so wonderful about the FOIA, by the way. It's when I've proposed bills that have now become law in Arkansas regarding the Freedom of Information Act, I tell the folks there in, in the legislature, this isn't about Uh, left or right, it's about right or wrong. One bill that was sponsored initially by um, Dan Sullivan, state senator from Jonesboro, uh, Craighead County, and you're from uh, Craighead County, right? Is Paragould in Craighead or it's right next to? It's right next to it it, in Greene County. In Greene County, gotcha. Um, But you know, of course, it's, it's a small town up there, so to speak, and you know Dan Sullivan is solid conservative so he sponsored a very good bill it's now law 
that I largely drafted. And we got a Democrat in the end to co-sponsor it, to his credit. I mean that sincerely. And then, interesting enough, the Democrat went to the floor of the Senate to propose the bill with agreement with Dan um, to, to reflect this notion. This isn't about right or wrong. This is about, uh, excuse me, this isn't about left or right. It's about right or wrong. Uh, it's about making sure that every citizen has the tools to, um, uh, to see what their government's doing. And that's the right answer. Right. So that is the right answer. It's, it's, it should not be a conservative issue. I think it falls under the conservative umbrella often because it's a check on government, and so it's part of our limited government advocacy. But as far as the people are concerned, the everyday constituent, it's not a left or right issue. That's right. It, it truly is a people issue, and I don't mean that as some stereotypical hoorah, whatever. Yeah. It's reality. Well, I'm happy to hoorah the people every time I can <laughs> as well. Um, let's take a break, and, and we'll come back. We'll talk some more about the Freedom of Information Act here on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave this morning here on um, The Answer. Speaking of The Answer, we have Hannah Webb Howard in the studio, and she always has all the answers. That's right. Never forget that. Exactly. I didn't say they're right, but she has all the answers. (laughs) Hannah, we're talking about uh, Arkansas's Freedom of Information Act, and before the break, you had mentioned that it's a very good tool for you as a lawyer to get information. But it, as you well know, and as you were implying, it's a tool for anybody to get information. And that's why it's such a, an important device uh, for our Kansans. If you have a question, you can write to, yeah, write is basically the best way to do it, to any governmental agency, state or local. And ask for records, folks. Records, it's not an interrogatory. I mean, you don't say, hey, tell me how many times you went to lunch. Tell me this. Tell me that. It's not tell me. It's always, always provide the records that show. And then you list which records you're interested in. Uh, So, folks, if you have a question, what your local library is doing, what your uh, local municipality is doing, how they're spending money, uh, what uh, the what King Mayor Scott has spent money on when he went to Memphis for a get together with his staff. There's there's no place to get together in Little Rock. No, no, we got to go to the Peabody in Memphis. They got that good barbecue place in Memphis. I forget the name of it, and it is quite good. But we got Whole Hog, and let me tell you, Whole Hog stands up against any barbecue place that I've been to, and f- someone from. Very northeast Arkansas, also known as New York. I know good barbecue. So the FOIA is such an important tool for conservatives, liberals, doesn't matter, to get information about their government. Interestingly, here in Little Rock, recently, Tom Carpenter, who's the city attorney, uh, said to the city, you got to revamp your FOIA process. I made a FOIA request of the city maybe a year ago or so, give or take, and it took them months and months to comply with the request. I had enough going on that I didn't sue them immediately. And ultimately they did respond. But they violated the law, and they violated the law clearly. They 
didn't respond uh, and tell me about delays. They uh, just delayed, 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 and finally produced the records. And had I, th- that's when I was running for office. So if I wasn't running for office at the time, I would have sued them then. So I got the records eventually. But part of the FOIA is that you get the records quickly. Now, I'm not saying if the agency formally contacts you and says, rather than three days, we intend to produce it in a week, and here's why, and here's what we've dis- produced, here's what we found already, please take these records. If, if, a, if an agency did that to me, I would never sue them. Never. Meaning in that context. Because that, to me, shows good faith. But that's not what they do. That's not what Sheriff Higgins did. They didn't produce the records for months. And now in their filing, they say, oh, well, we were working as hard as we can. Really? Really? And it just turned out by coincidence that all the records became readily available the day we had a hearing? That's nonsense. What they did was they delayed, delayed, denied, denied. And then the day they were getting to court, they panicked. And their lawyer said to them, this doesn't look good. And then they produced a bunch of records, even some a day late, no less. Day late from the hearing, two or three months late from the request. That's not good faith. That's chicanery uh, at its best. And in those contexts, I will sue every single time. But this is an ongoing problem that we have with the Freedom of Information Act, that people are stonewalled. Unlike most folks, uh, um, I can easily sue because I'm an attorney. I know how to do it. Most folks don't know how to do it. It's arduous. uh, And it's hard to get an attorney. And even I, who volunteer, all my work right now is pro bono, is for free. But there's a limit of the number of cases I can take on. And I'm at the limit, essentially, now. And don't get me wrong, I got another one coming soon. So every time I say there's a limit, another case creeps up. Anyway, I had mentioned to you that Tom Carpenter had recommended to the city they revamp entirely their FOIA process, and that's to his good credit. And Tom and I have been uh, and are in our litigation battles. Uh, We're battling over guns in City Hall. He's wrong on 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 the city's position. He's just wrong. But nonetheless, Tom strikes me as an earnest fellow. And guess what? Shortly after Tom said the city isn't doing what they were required to do when it comes to the Freedom of Information Act, all of a sudden now there's some sort of complaint against Tom. Oh, he made some sort of racist comment. Really? Tom's a liberal, by the way. Now, I'm not suggesting that conservatives routinely make racist comments, but Tom is a liberal in a liberal environment, um, and all of a sudden, 30, 40 years of doing what he's doing... And he made a racist comment? I'm skeptical. I can't say it didn't happen. I can't say it did happen. But so far from what I've heard, Tom, a a, a liberal, leftist um, person who works in a leftist environment, all of a sudden, out of the blue, made a racist comment shortly after he told King Scott and his administration that they ain't doing the FOIA right when King Scott lied to the public routinely about wanting to be the most transparent mayor in the city. It reads to me like a setup. That's what it seems to, to read like now. Let's, let's see what the evidence shows. 
but I'm skeptical. And and I'm no I'm not friends with Tom Carpenter. We've never gotten coffee together. We've never been we've never had lunch together. Um, I can't remember if I've ever physically met him. I've spoken to him, right, of course. But I can't and I've met him virtually at a court hearing because it was a virtual court hearing. Um, but he's a competent attorney and his take on the FOIA in Little Rock is a decidedly pro transparency take at least recently so and shortly thereafter they're coming after him hmm so what changes did he propose oh he said they need to set up a whole unit that's dedicated to responding to the FOIA that by the way it reminds me of this case against the sheriff's office where the guy who's in charge of responding said I've had to spend up to 10 hours a week responding to these FOIA requests really what are you doing with the other 30 hours a week? Right? This is the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office, and they got a guy doing FOIA responses part-time? Part-time? This is how perverse this environment is. The Pulaski County Sheriff's Office has someone part-time responding to the FOIA, and they say, look how much we're doing. And my response to them is, you ain't doing enough. Think about that after these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. And I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave this Friday morning. With me in the studio is Hannah Webb Howard. We're expecting Chris Corbett in, but we haven't seen him so far. Hannah, we're talking about the Freedom of Information Act here in Arkansas. And you brought up a good point during the break that I want to share with Dave's audience. You know, like I said, it took months, months to get the records from the Pulaski County Sheriff, Eric Higgins, in court filings. They claim, oh, we were working hard. We were working hard. And my response to that is not hard enough. Oh, we got one guy working part-time. One guy working part-time. Why did you have three guys working full-time on that? Are you too busy wasting time on yoga mats and popcorn for the prisoners? I mean, it's really absurd what's going on. And so even the defenses, well, you know, uh, uh, we've been talking to counsel for the requester, meaning me. Uh, hey, I don't get paid to do your work. I don't get paid to have conversations with you. Oh, well, we really want this record. When we said we wanted it, we really want the record. Oh, can we get it now? Can we get it next week? I don't get paid for that. Do your job and do it properly. And the Pulaski County Sheriff hasn't done that. Eric Higgins hasn't done that. Eric Higgins is not competent. He's not competent at transparency and he's not competent at law enforcement. In any event, you brought up a good point. Why don't you share what what you were saying during the break about why it's really virtually unmanageable that these places like Pulaski County Sheriff's Office should take so long to produce records. So it's the digital age. It's 2022, and you cannot tell me. And I do not know what the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office filing system is like. It could, in fact, be paper copies of everything only. I highly, highly doubt that to be the case, particularly in one of the most advanced cities technologically in state. They have electronic records that, like the rest of us, can get in their search bar and search. And I am certain, just to do their job, the sheer volume 
of documents and issues and cases that they have to deal with, they have to have some kind of comprehensive filing system to keep it all straight. I mean, otherwise, A, they couldn't do their job. B, it would just it would be stupid. They don't, they don't do it that way. They have records easily searchable in electronic form that should – maybe they can't produce it in three days, but it should be a quick resolution. By the way, can't? They can uh, if they had someone working full-time. But put that aside for a moment. They take months and months – to produce these records. Oh, and they're filing. Well, you know, we had to go through to, to, to check for redactions. We looked at the records. There are virtually no redactions. That's when you cross out stuff that you don't want to produce. So they make all these claims about how much work it was. But in the end, none of that seems to re- even be true. So it's doubly problematic. It takes them months and months to comply. And then when they c- comply, they claim it's so arduous to do the things they had to do. And then they didn't have to do any of the things they claimed they had to do. This is time and time again what we see from these government entities. It's this unwillingness to put in the resources to respond to Freedom of Information Act requests. And I hear it all the time. You know what they say? They say, well, it interferes with our ability to do our jobs. You don't understand. You're a government actor. You're a government employee. Your job is to respond to Freedom of Information Act requests. And how do we know that? Because over 50 years ago, the governor signed a bill written by the legislature, amended many times, that tells you what your job is. You work for a government entity. Well, I don't work for the state. Guess what? Every locality in this state exists at the pleasure of the state. It exists pursuant to state statute that authorizes the creation of these subsidiary governmental entities. Everything is state activity. And the state brought those local entities into existence. And as a technical matter, they can take them out, too. Well, and to be fair, it probably is incredibly burdensome on these agencies when they do get a large FOIA request. But that does not mean that they still should not dedicate the resources to production because it should be one of the most important pillars of our government is transparency to its people. It's why they exist. So I have no doubt that it is burdensome for them. But the proper provisions should be made to produce accordingly. Well, indeed, you know, this is the word that you often hear from government entities and you hear from uh, bureau hacks who want to change a FOIA to put a burden requirement uh, or defense in it. Well, it's too much burden. He put a too much burden requirement or, or defense into the Freedom of Information Act. And guess what? Every government entity is going to say it's too much burden. Why? Because they're going to say, well, we decide what is a burden, what's not a burden. No, it's not a burden. It's no more burden than getting up every morning, showing up to work, and doing your job eight hours a day. It's not a burden. It's an obligation. That's the difference. And even the notion of burden suggests that somehow it's beyond the scope of work. No, it's your job. So burden's not the right word. It's work? Yeah, that's why we pay you. And if you don't like to work, guess what? You can go work for Walmart. Because Walmart ain't a government entity. So they don't have to respond to Freedom of Information Act requests. Only government entities respond to Freedom of Information Act requests. Right? I was told yesterday, in fact, when I made a request that encompassed the private law firm hired by Pulaski County Sheriff's Office. By the way, you're going to love this. The Pulaski County Sheriff's Office taking your tax dollars and spending $300 an hour on an attorney to represent them. Why, is that, why isn't the Pulaski County Attorney's Office representing 
the Pulaski County Sheriff. And in fact, I learned it was a Pulaski County Attorney's Office that hired this big building, what do they call it, tall building lawyer firm here in town and paying their attorney $300 an hour out of your taxpayer dollars. And so that's what you, that's where your hard-earned tax dollars are going. They're going to hire a private attorney. So I said, okay, well, I want your records, the law firm's records, regarding this case as well. And the attorney said, well, you know, we're not a public entity. Well, actually, you are. Meaning, when a, when a private entity performs a government function, such as being the lawyer for a public entity, in that context... They're a public entity. And, and so I got the records, and they turned them over um, with a little hesitation at first and then willingly thereafter. But this is the kind of speed bumps that you're constantly facing when you're seeking government transparency. Oh, we're not a government entity. Oh, you have to do this. Oh, you have to do that. And then they, they told me that they're giving me the records as a courtesy. You know, you can tell me you're giving them as a banana as long as I get the records. I, I mean, I don't, okay, courtesy. Thank you. Very, you want me to say thank you? Okay, thank you. I'll say thank you every day. I went to court once. I had a case. And the judge said, well, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. And, and ruled in my favor. My client's favor, to be clear, right? I'll give, I'll give your client the benefit of the doubt. I almost said something, but I bit my tongue because I, I won. A right? rare occurrence. Indeed. Speaker. Indeed. And... What, what was I going to say? You didn't give me the benefit of the doubt. The law gave me the benefit of the doubt. That's what it says, beyond a reasonable doubt. The law gives me the benefit of the doubt. Not you, judge. You're not doing me any favors. And so when an attorney or a government entity says, we're going to give you a courtesy by giving you the records you're entitled to, I'll say thank you. But guess what? They didn't do me any favors. They did what they're required to do. How, have you hit any roadblocks in your FOIA requests? No. No. And to be fair, in in my practice, I don't make requests terribly often. I mean, generally, they're pretty routine and pretty clear cut. I mean, we we generally make them knowing that we're going to get entitled to the records and going to get the records. Um, And in my experience, even with large volume of records, agencies have been pretty compliant. Good. Now, to be fair, you could be the polarizing figure here. And I know you know that. Um and I don't – I'm certain that agencies see Steinbuck's name signed to the FOIA request and immediately throw up every defense mechanism that they may have. So you may draw – Well, in the cases I'm telling you about, they didn't know I was involved because okay. I'm, I'm the attorney. I wasn't making the request. So I wasn't involved until, until we sued, basically. Sure. Yeah. Um, but the person who is making the requests, they said, well, he's, he's 25% of all of our requests. So – Guess what? what? What if the newspaper was 25%, right? Because they're usually the biggest requester because they act on behalf of the people. So the, so what if this guy's... Tw- well, you see, therefore, um, we, we essentially they say, we can delay turning over records because he's asked for a lot of records. No, guess what? The more records he asks for, the more resources you got to put into responding to those record requests. You got one guy working part-time, 10 hours a week, Where's the other 30? Where's the other 30? So it's, it, it's really frustrating when these government entities, even in court, 
present this attitude, which they did. They filed a brief that we're doing them a favor. We, the government entity, is doing the requester a favor by giving them 10 hours a week to get the records they want. That's not doing me a favor. That's not doing my client a favor. That's demonstrating that you ain't doing enough. It's it's an admission that they're barely doing the bare minimum of what their job requires of them. So FOIA is a statutory command. So any governmental agency subject to FOIA, it is part of the very framework that makes up their job duties. Whether or not they feel it should be part of their daily task, it is. And it ain't just in your employee handbook. It is written in a statute for which you have to comply with. That's such an important point. It's such a critical point. And maybe it's missed because when people take a job, they're like, oh, well, I'm coming in to be the comptroller of such and such. And nobody says to them, by the way, part of what you got to do is respond to FOIA requests because the law says so. Maybe. But that's not the requester's fault. That's the supervisor's fault for not informing the subordinate of what his job duties are. But the law is a law. And Arkansas has one of the best Freedom of Information Acts around. And I have fought every legislative session that I've been here, I think, to prevent bad amendments to the Freedom of Information Act. Jason Rapert went on the floor of the Senate when he proposed a change, which I approved of, uh, by the way, only after getting involved because the first version uh, needed some work. And went on the floor of the Senate and said, Robert Steinbeck has approved of this bill. Now, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because I do it often enough in or out of public. I assure you, it's not out of a sense of modesty. But my point is that people know I fight for the Freedom of Information Act. And if you want to go before the Senate, or, and the House too, I do in the House too. I had a, a big flare up in the House on a bill that was a direct attack on the Freedom of Information Act recently, and I went in there and I said, it's clear what this bill is designed to do. It's to undermine transparency. And this was just at the beginning of COVID. I had a mask on. I waited out front of the room. I was very uh, concerned, afraid of catching COVID uh, early on. And By the way, folks, and I've gotten vaccinated. And for me, that's the right thing to do. For you, if it's not, that's fine too. If it is, that's fine, too. I'm not here to tell people what to do with their own bodies. Uh, and, and certainly you have no obligation to get vaccinated for me and vice versa. But for me, it's all right. And it's still some people say, well, you know, if you knew it. No, no, I'm OK with having gotten vaccinated for me. But I, you know, I have a particular medical profile and I discussed it with my doctors. I just didn't make this up willy nilly. And for me, it was the right thing to do and is the right thing to do. In any event. So I waited and I went in and I testified and then I left. And I watched the rest uh, uh, on video. And I will call out any legislator or any body, any organization that seeks to undermine the Freedom of Information Act. And too often we see this. We saw this uh, with the um, Arkansas counties. Uh, um, they come in and they propose bills uh, to undermine the FOIA. Well, let's take a break and we'll pick up this notion uh, shortly. This is the Dave Ellswick Show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. And I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Friday morning in the studio with us is Hannah Webb Howard. Hannah, let's change topics a little bit. At the top of the hour, we're going to welcome Congressman French Hill for a segment. uh, And then we will um, uh, come back to our discussion. Uh, But we've got a few minutes before 
the congressman joins us, and I wanted to ask you, you know, we're going through a dean search at the law school. And I want you to tell us about your experience at the law school in general and what you think can be improved. Because, of course, when you hire a new dean, you hope that they can focus on things that can be improved. you have any thoughts on that? So I generally no issues with my time at Bowen. Bowen is a unique school with great advantages for students that want to stay in Arkansas. So you are in essentially the legal capital of the state here in Little Rock. You have the capital quite literally a few streets over from the school itself. So you have every state agency that a student could want to get experience or internships or clerkships with. And then you also have one of the the central hub of economics and business in the state. Of course, Fayetteville and Northwest Arkansas has given us a run for our money. But, I mean, traditionally one of the economic centers of the state. And so it's a, it's a fantastic spot as a student. And, in fact, it was important to me that all those resources were available to me when I picked a law school because from where I'm from in Paragold, Memphis would have been a closer law school for me. It would have been more convenient. I could have seen my family more. I probably could have stayed at home and went to Memphis for school. But I knew I wanted to practice in Arkansas, and I knew I wanted to be involved in Arkansas. And, of course, I knew I was interested in politics and wanted to be around the Central Hub. And I knew that I wanted my professional life to be separate from my political life. I've, I've always been very adamant about that. And Literock gave me that option. Um, so Bowen is in a unique position, a perfect storm of environmental factors to make it a great school. And I'm fine with my experience I had there. Um, and this this is probably a critique of all law schools, maybe, maybe not. When you get out in the real world, law school is very academic, and as it should be, you got to learn the law. There's very little practical effect or, or practical application while you're in school. And so they may teach you the philosophy of constitutional law, which is important, and lawyers should absolutely know that. But they don't teach you how to draft a complaint for a breach of contract, which is what I do every day so and particularly at bowen we have a strong overwhelming emphasis on public service and public service jobs which are good and fine and if that's your interest it's great i want to make money (laughs) and you are locked in to a a governmental salary position maybe low paying and a lot of public service jobs are pro bono or very little resources to make a living on. And, of course, the student debt crisis is real and apparent. It's been in the forefront of the news. And law students are hit with student loans. To be fair, they take them out themselves with calculated decision. you got student loans. you got to pay them back. you got to make a living. you got to do the things. And so there's not a huge emphasis on how to go out and be a private practicing attorney. There's just not a huge emphasis on it, and I think it's a deficiency, a a gap that should be bridged with the school because I think they're producing students that aren't ready or maybe don't know that those jobs are out there. And so there's a bit of a hole in the market. You know, I have spent virtually all of my career in public service, but I really have a problem when a school undertakes a political mission because you should be admitting people of all political stripes and 
letting them make their choices. And I think having this built into the system, baked into the cake, that, well, we have an emphasis on public service. Why? Is there something wrong with private attorneys? The fact is that private attorneys make our environment possible. It makes you able to go to Dillard's and buy something. It allows you to buy your home. It allows you to rent a car. All these, every time you interact with someone else in the world, in a business sense, there's a business lawyer behind that. And it makes our capitalist way of life has been demonstrated to be the best method to lift up all boats, to create wealth across the board. And so while I only worked in private practice, I think three years out of a 30-year career so far, uh, the, the notion that we should be pushing people in one direction or another direction in terms of their legal employment strikes me as a political move, a political emphasis. Because I think the left thinks, well, you see, quote, public service is better than private attorneys. No, it's not. It's just different. We need public service and we need private attorneys. Right? You can't have one without the other. So that's really a problem that I see. And, uh, and I don't like that. I don't like this constant emphasis. You know, at the law school, we're hiring a new dean, I mentioned to you. And there's a dean's committee. It's the largest dean's committee I've ever seen, by the way. It's got 11 people associated with the law school and then four outsiders. By the way, of the 11 people uh, from the law school, no white men. Zero. Uh, Of the 11 people, actually of all 15 people, no Jews. Zero Jews. Zero Jews. Every African-American professor and administrator is on that committee. And zero Jews. Think about that as we go to these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Friday morning here on 101.1 FM. The answer in the studio, of course, is Hannah Webb Howard. Apparently, we have on the line, uh, crawled out of bed and put on a pair of PJs, uh, Chris Corbett. Uh, Chris, you, you, you managed to uh, to uh, pull yourself out of a coma? What are you saying? I'm sitting right in front of you, right in yeah, the studio. Exactly. Exactly. This is the kind of janky operation we get running from the Chris Corbett radio show there, right? Well, well my plan was to be there, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, in the studio with you and Hannah. But how'd that work out? 
Like it's not so good. I failed. Yeah, exactly. Of course, we're waiting on uh, Congressman French Hill to give us a, a call. <clears throat> In the meantime, uh, just at the end of the last segment, I was talking with Hannah about the, um, uh, the, the new dean's search at the Bowen Law School. Of course, Hannah's a graduate of the Bowen Law School. Um, uh, I teach at the Bowen Law School. My views on this radio show are mine and mine alone, of course. Uh, and you're a graduate of the Bowen Law School. You, of course, also have more degrees than a thermometer, so we fit it in amongst the many. But, Chris, uh, I mentioned just prior to the break that we've got a dean's search committee over at the Bowen Law School, and it's got um, 11 people from the law school, including every uh, um, African-American professor and administrator in zero of the Jewish professors. Um, that's a pretty interesting uh, uh, bifurcation in terms of so-called diversity, equity, inclusion. But I'm not going to let you respond at the moment because the congressman is called in. We know his time is limited. You're going to be with us longer, yeah. Chris, that is. So uh, yeah. let's welcome uh, Congressman French Hill to the station, uh, to, the, to the show. Uh, congressman, how are you this morning? Robert, good morning. I'm glad to hear your voice. We had such a great time with Dave last week in uh, Washington talking about Joe Biden's failures at the border and what to do about it. Great to have him in town. Yeah, it's always it's always fun when Dave gets uh, out of the studio and and does his on-site activities. He's alone in doing that. When we're in the legislative session here in Arkansas, you know, he literally sets up an operation in the Capitol itself and he pulls legislators uh, who are involved in uh, pushing bills uh, and gets the skinny from them. And it's really a wonderful resource for the people of Arkansas, because if the people of Arkansas don't know what their elected officials are doing, then we have a problem. That's state and federal, of course, and that's one of the virtues of having you call in to the Dave Ellswick Show on a regular basis is to talk about issues that the people are interested in. So let's get right to it. We just saw that Ukraine has taken back some of its own land that was invaded by Russia and apparently discovered mass graves and other really violations of international law, violations of the law of war. So I want to talk to you about this because I am a little bit concerned, I must say, that some folks on the conservative side uh, are a little um, reticent about who is in the right on this war. And I will give credit where credit is due. And the Biden administration says that the Ukrainians are in the right. Doesn't mean Ukraine is perfect. Doesn't mean that country's free of corruption. By the way, the U.S. isn't free of corruption. So, but I think there's a clear right and wrong here. Talk to us a little bit, a little bit about what's going on over there. Robert, thanks for bringing it up. Look, Ukraine was in the Soviet orbit. It was a, a people. Uh, the Ukrainian people were. Uh, over many decades crushed by both Russian czars and by Stalin. Stalin executed well over a million, I'll be way under on that number, Ukrainians during his rule of the Soviet Union. Russia has always deemed uh, the people of Ukraine as essentially serfs, agricultural people for Russia. And 
Putin wants to put the band back together. He's not satisfied uh, that the Russian uh, domination of the Soviet Union fell apart back in 1990 when the Berlin Wall fell. He thought it was a great humiliation. So what's the motivation here? The motivation is you have an authoritarian, murderous dictator who kills people all over the world with impunity. He kills people in parks in London. Uh, He invaded Georgia. Uh, during the Bush administration, he murdered 25,000 Chechens uh, in uh, 2000. So for 22 years, uh, Putin has been a murderous thug. He's responsible for the destruction of Syria and backing Assad's narco state and murderous uh, state with in partnership with the Iranians. So bad actor. He's invaded a sovereign country. Ukraine has been independent. Since 1991, it has its own parliament, it's had elections, it had a a, a Russian puppet government that the people of Ukraine rose up against throughout, held democratic elections, and you're right, not a perfect country. Uh, It's it's got a reputation of, of corruption, but that doesn't mean that it has the right to be invaded by a member of the UN Security Council. So, uh, we are... Uh, uh, we are in this situation because, in my opinion, it was Barack Obama who did not handle uh, Putin's uh, incursions into eastern Ukraine and then taking over the Crimea, right? He emboldened this full-scale invasion that started on February 24th. So if we want to honor sovereign government, if we want to stand up for the rule of law, if we want to prevent other authoritarian thugs in Venezuela, China, Russia, uh Central America from doing the same thing, then we need to partner with Europe in defeating Putin in Ukraine. You know, we've heard historically with different presidents, you know, the Bush doctrine, the uh, the Powell doctrine. Obviously, he wasn't president, but you take my meaning. All these doctrines from these different various uh, um, senior governmental officials that that's their approach. And it typically applies to foreign policy. And I'll tell you what the Steinbuck Doctrine is. Nobody elected me to anything. Uh, I'm just a guy who teaches law and occasionally he's on the radio. But here's the Steinbuck Doctrine. It's no longer should we tolerate the invasion of a sovereign nation irrespective of what historical claims may be. And mind you, in this context, there aren't any claims that are valid of the Russians on the Ukrainians. But put that aside, even as a note, well, you know, 150 years ago, the country was this, and we really should have gotten this piece of land, and so now we're finally going to take it back. Nope. No longer. We are in a modern world, and if you can't get the, the land back through peaceful means, you're stuck with what history has produced. The fact is that history is messy, and for most of human existence, the only thing that spoke, the only medium of communication was violence, and we have moved past that. And in our international order, oh, I use the phrase, it sounds rather conspiratorial and leftist at times, but it's not. In our international order, we cannot tolerate that a sovereign nation, their borders are invaded, irrespective of whether there's a claim. You know, Congressman, yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think our citizens, you know, should get uh, confused by their disappointment or disagreement with uh, President Bush's, uh, you know, uh, actions in Iraq, for example. Don't draw a straight line. Exactly. 
about this and don't use other things, as you know, I think as precedent. And don't think America intervenes every time something happens. We're not in the Kashmir in a 70 or 80 year old concern between the Pakistanis and the Indians over who controls the Kashmir. Mm-hmm. We're not in Azerbaijan with our with the Armenians. We're not in Africa over territorial disputes. We don't willy nilly go into territorial disputes. This is a threat in Europe, and we are a European partner as the largest uh, partner in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And while Ukraine is not a member, uh, you have also the U.N. situation, which is unprecedented. And this is concerning to all of us, and this is why it's a precedent for China. You have a P5, a Security Council veto member in the United Nations, doing the invading. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it limits the U.N.'s legal ability to intervene like we did when we ejected, uh, say, Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. That was pursuant to a U.N. resolution. Well, uh, China, I mean, uh, Russia has been rejected by the U.N. in several votes by the General Assembly, but we can't actually get a U.N. Security Council resolution, for example, to eject Putin from Ukraine. If it were another country, I guarantee you that would have already happened. Well, that's exactly right. And and for the audience, you know, there are two levels in the U.N. There's the General Assembly, and they can pass whatever they want, but it has no force. And there's the Security Council, which I don't remember the number you might know offhand, a congressman, a dozen or so. And there's some permanent members, U.S., China, Russia, um, I think a couple of others. And those permanent members literally have a veto. So if you want to pass a resolution that says, hey, uh, um, you have to get out of this country – uh, and you want to say it to one of the permanent members who's doing the invading, it's not going to happen because Russia's going to veto it if it's regarding them. And that's what's taking place right now. Well, and just one final point on this. I know you want to talk about other things. Sure. There are war crimes being committed in the Ukraine by the Russians. You noted the burials being discovered. And the United Nations General Assembly did vote and did fund, and they can do this without veto from Russia. Uh, the uh, investigating support for the International Criminal Court. So we have uh, a money, uh, UN staff, independent prosecutors and analysts that are in Ukraine documenting uh, international war crimes committed by uh, the Russians there. And, you know, that is an instance where um, one can work around, I would say, the Security Council in, in manners to... Uh, try to hold them accountable for that. Indeed. And thank you. That's an important clarification, an important subtle distinction between the General Assembly and um, the uh, uh, the smaller body. We're going to go to a break in just a moment, but I would like to highlight, you know, you hear some folks saying wrongfully, uh, well, Putin is making claim, well, there are a bunch of Nazis over there in Ukraine. And it's because there were a fair contingent, uh, you know, how many years ago now, 80 years ago of Ukrainians who allied with the Nazis during World War II, but they did so. This is not an excuse. It's not an excuse. Uh, but they did so because they had been invaded by the Soviets. Well, if you were invaded by the Soviets, who are you going to look to? The other guy. 
unfortunately, the other guy were the Nazis. So I don't give them a pass on that, but there's a history to why Putin is calling them Nazis when they're not, because I'll finish on this thought, and then we'll go to break, and then we'll come back with you, Congressman. The th- the, this thought, which is the president of Ukraine is a Jew whose grandfather was killed by the Nazis. So I think you're hard-pressed to call Ukrainians Nazis. We'll take a break, Congressman, and we'll be right back after these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbeck here on 101.1 FM. The answer we have on the line, and we'll get right to it, Congressman French Hill. Uh, Congressman, um, we're going to, as you mentioned, uh, transition off of this discussion of Ukraine. Um, but I want to talk about, well, let's talk about the border. Because I think I, I think there are some elements that tie into Ukraine, that tie into border, and then will tie into perhaps even another topic. What's going on at the border? And this let me just say up front, it's you can't have a country if you don't restrict entrance to the country. You have land, but that's not a country as far as I'm concerned. What are your thoughts and what's going on? Yeah, this is uh, <clears throat> this has been a 30 year challenge. And it used to be a very strong bipartisan agreement going back to the end of the Reagan administration, beginning of the George H.W. Bush administration into Clinton, which is that we should have. Uh, fencing along the border in open gaps, particularly in urban areas where uh, they were having a lot of uh, crossover migrants who come into the country illegal, bringing in drugs, bringing in human trafficking, and we couldn't stop it. So we began in the 90s to build what we call now the wall. And I know that that's connected with President Trump, but it's been a three-decade project. And uh, President Trump was pointing out how we never finished it. We never completed the most important sections, and he dedicated his presidency to doing that. Joe Biden stopped that construction, stopped it. And we are still paying construction penalties for stuff piled up in the desert because we're still paying the contractors to not build the wall. So, number one, we need technology and barrier Uh, that is consistent, that, as I say, used to be a bipartisan effort. Number two, and that includes the personnel and all that coordination. Number two, we have to have interior enforcement, which means we have to enforce our immigration laws inside the United States. And Joe Biden's administration, under Article 2, as the executive, is not faithfully executing the laws inside the United States, which creates this concept of sanctuary cities. We're not deporting felons. We're not going after MS-13 gang members. All that was something that Trump worked really hard on. Uh, Thirdly, we need to reform the immigration laws. Uh, Senator Cotton's been very good on this, where we still continue family unification, but we also improve our merit-based immigration system. I think this is such an important long-term trend for the success of our economy. And uh, here Congress has failed time and time again for the last 20 years to find consensus. And remember, this is a a democratic republic. We have to find consensus. Otherwise, you're forced to deal with all these crazy executive orders fired back and forth between different administrations. So we are at the most open, dangerous border in three decades. Three million interdictions, 900,000 getaways, which means there are people in the country we don't even know where they are. These are observed by National Guard, state police, or Border Patrol. Record amounts of fentanyl that could kill every American 13 times over. 
which is contributing to this opioid addiction and opioid death crisis in our country where we're losing a plane load of people a day. It'd be like having an airplane crash every day in our country. That'd be on the news, right? Well, that's how many people we're losing to opioid deaths in this nation. Congressman, uh, this is such an important topic, and you highlight such an important distinction, and that is in our current law on immigration, we have this notion called family reunification. It sounds real, too. Oh, well, of course, I'm for families being complete. And you contrasted it correctly, of course. You don't need me telling you that, by the way, but I'll do it anyway. I'm a professor. I get to do that. Uh, With merit. So the notion of family reunification is if we let in John Smith uh, to the country, then John Smith gets to bring in his wife or child or something like that later. That wife or child skips the line. So we have outsourced our choices of immigration to the last guy that we let in the door. I think that's a problem. i got to let you know a little secret. I don't mind if John Smith wants to bring in his wife, but I think his wife needs to get in line. If, she didn't, if they didn't come in together, I don't know why they didn't, but if they didn't come in together, his wife needs to get in line. And we should focus much, much more on merit. Why? Because we're not here giving out handouts. If we're offering citizenship to people, we should get something out of the deal. We should say, what are you giving us? This is not a lottery. We get yeah. to choose. Go ahead, sir. No. Well, you're right. And what happens is we only we only have uh, legal permission to admit a few over a million people a year legally. And so if you have this family unification defined too broadly, then you squeeze out those green cards that might be for an engineer that's going to work at Axiom or, a, or a, an amazing neurosurgeon that's going to work at CHI St. Vincent and causes them not to be able to immigrate to uh, help our country grow and prosper. And it's in that definition. If it were the spouse and the child, uh, I think that's the core family. But frequently it's cousins, it's aunts and uncles. And so that definition of family unification is quite broad. And this is why it's not punitive to say, as as Senator Cotton argued uh, about four years ago, you know, let's move from 70-30 family unification merit to more like 50-50. And we can do that over a period of years. And uh, I think our country will you know, be better off. But that requires, obviously, a law change. And I think it's the right kind of common sense change we need to make. And then the other one I want you as a great attorney to think about, you know, is this issue of defining seeking asylum. Indeed. Uh, This is what clogs our border. Really complicated issue. We want to be fair. But basically the people admitted to our country, not the kids with moms, but the adults, (laughs) claim they're seeking asylum and that they'll be killed in their home country. And the fact is 90% are not admitted, and they're deported or attempted to be deported because we don't offer uh, economic asylum here. We only offer uh, true political uh, asylum based on that assessment of threat in their home country. And tough subject. We cannot get consensus to change that law. I think it would be so important. I think it would improve security at the border. It's a critical distinction because this notion of economic security, everybody would come here. We're the richest, best country in the world. You can't just open the the doors. Unfortunately, Congressman, as is typically the case, we have more questions and less time. (laughs) Sir, it's been an honor to have you on the show. You have a great time up there, and we will be back after these words. 
This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this morning here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. In the studio, of course, is Hannah Webb Howard. On the phone is Chris Corbett. Chris, as you know, the law school that you attended, of which you are an alum, uh, is doing a dean search. They've got a dean search committee of 15 people. I mean, I think that's larger than the Politburo, but put that aside for a moment. 11 of those 15 people are from the law school. One is retired, and, and 10 are uh, people who are actively at the law school. And amongst those 11, they literally have every African-American professor currently teaching there and every African-American administrator, and that's a total of three, and they have zero Jews, and there are five Jews on the faculty. None of them, by the way, administrators. None of them in positions of power. Five Jews, they couldn't find one of them to put on the committee. In light, by the way, of the issues that came up with my inability, uh, or at least claim, that I shouldn't be taking off uh, for the Jewish holidays and having a guest lecture in my stead. Ultimately, that was resolved in my favor. Uh, but only after uh, everybody, uh, uh, not everybody, it's not fair to say, many people uh, on the faculty and everybody who was an administrator who wasn't involved with it turned their head away. Oh, what? I don't know what's happening. Or apologized for the awful behavior that I uh, underwent. Uh, so, you know, what do you think about that? Chris, how is this diversity, equity, and inclusion? Ain't no Jews included. <laughs> Rob, it is amazing to me, example after example of some of these liberal professors up there extolling the virtues of diversity and then doing just the opposite. Well, this is what they're doing right now in their Dean Search Committee. They're controlling the process. You know, I thought the notion of diversity, uh, and Hannah, you can join in as well. I thought the notion of diversity, equity, and let me emphasize, inclusion, was to actually be inclusive. And yet, there are zero, zero Jews on the committee. Of 15 people, there are five Jewish faculty. There are only three African-American faculty uh, and administrators um, at the law school, all three of them are on the committee. So is diversity, equity, inclusion actually inclusion, or is it just inclusion for those select few that happen to align with the political philosophies of those in charge? Chris, Hannah, what are your thoughts? Oh, yeah. Well, Rob, I've always questioned Advantages of diversity. I mean, I, I looked at it. Is diversity really that good? Is diversity that good? I don't know. Do you need diversity on a, on a front line of a football team? Do you need a 100-pound person next to a 300-pound person? That's diversity, but it ain't going to work on the front line of the football field, right? And that's a, you know, a crude example, but um, taking diversity and putting it on a hilltop and saying, we need to achieve diversity. Does that give a better outcome? I just don't know. And so I question the very premise that diversity is better. Well, and you raise an important question. But let's assume for the sake of argument that it is 
uh, uh, useful, or at least we recognize that the left thinks it's paramount. If it's paramount, how is diversity diversity if you have all of the African-Americans at the school on the committee, but zero of the Jews, and there are five Jews at the law school out of a total of, what, 20, 25, probably 25 professors? How is that possible? What are your thoughts, Anna? In all situations, irrespective of the nuances of what is the diversity makeup of this board, my knee-jerk is always merit should be the baseline for everything. I don't know. Diversity, I'm certain, has benefits. But when you are selecting the leader of an organization, a school for which will manage faculty and a large population of students, merit should be the driving factor across the board, not only in the selection of the person who's going to serve in that role, but also the board that makes up the committee that's going to select that person. It should just be a merit-based system. And that's across the board. That's in nearly every position ever, every board ever, every job selection application process ever. Merit should drive the analysis, period. You see this, of course, in law school admissions as well, right? That, that we talk about those qualifications that will indicate, predict success in the law in the future. And so what do, when you apply to law school, you've got to take the entrance exam, the law school uh, admissions test, the LSAT. And the law school looks at your LSAT score and looks at your undergraduate GPA. And more and more, those leftists that don't want to use those metrics because it they don't produce the percentage of minorities that is equivalent uh, to those uh, populations in society in general. Okay, well, there's a variety of reasons, right? The different groups pursue law uh, at different rates. So I don't know why you should expect that it should mirror percentages in society. And so we, um, uh, we hear phrases like, well, we, we look at their grit. Grit? What, do you rub your hand against them and feel how rough they are? I mean, that's what I understand the word grit to mean. We look at their grit. You know what grit is? Grit's a lie. Grit is an attempt to cover up that all you're doing is uh, using um, diversity factors, race, sex, uh, um, national origin, whatever the case may be, uh, to um, elevate a candidate over what the merit criteria indicate. And here's what research that I've conducted uh, demonstrates. When for a, a long period, maybe five-year period that I analyzed, the bar passage rate, first-time bar passage rate for African-Americans at, at my law school, uh, excuse me, the, the first-time bar failure rate for African-Americans at the Bowen Law School was double that of whites. Now, it clearly can't be because there's some disparity in black versus white capability in general. Of course not. It was because in the African-American admission system, which is largely a system that um, discounts the value of LSAT scores and undergraduate GPA, uh, we admitted students on average with much lower metrics. And when you have much lower metrics coming in, you're going to have a much lower 
bar passage rate. And that's what we had. So who are you doing the favor for? Right? When you do that, you get a bunch of people who fail the bar at a much higher rate. And we're not informing them of that. And here's what you, you want to do that. Offer them free tuition. Tell them if they fail the bar, they'll get their money back. But we're not going to do that because we're still taking the money. What are your thoughts about that? <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Wow, that's all that. Come to school. Come to law school for free. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. That's interesting. The uh, point you brought up, but I mean, the what they're doing, I guess, is to have more black lawyers would be a good thing. Sure. Um, and uh, um, uh, but but to admit a person based on race because they have a lower entrance exam in the end it doesn't work and you've just shown it with your research it just doesn't work unfortunately they bought into a um, a set of goods here paid for it and in the end can't pass the bar that's brutal Ooh, that's ugly i had one fellow say well you know we should take a chance on these folks uh well you know we're not taking the chance albeit we risk our reputation the school now is in the fourth yeah. tier and by the way, our reputation factor is much higher. It's like 110 or something like that. So that's not what's pulling us down. What's pulling us down are our admissions metrics, uh, and then incidentally, as a consequence, but it's a smaller measure, our bar passage. But our LSAT score mm. is low, and that's pulling us down. And mm. if we would stop elevating factors Grit factors, which is make-believe. It's just make-believe. Grit factors. And we would focus on removing those lower scores uh, of the LSAT uh, from our admissions. We would raise our standing, and we could get back into the third tier. I think we should be somewhere in the high third tier or even better in the second tier and it's achievable but it's not achievable if you if you continue to do what we've been doing which is uh, to discount the value of LSAT scores in our admissions process because LSAT scores show up in the rankings uh, to a good measure uh, so we're hurting ourselves twice we increase our bar failure rate and we decrease our average LSAT score and people are not benefiting from this. This is a real, real mistake. Hannah, what are your thoughts? So, there is no doubt an imbalance between the minority and majority populations in higher education. And I, I don't, I don't, this is not an ignorance of the problem, saying there's not a problem. My preference would be that we help the issues that create that separation from the ground up. So the issue is not best fixed in post-secondary education. It starts at the, the family structure. It starts at ground level. We need to go down to the fix the root of the issue to help lift up whatever these issues may be whatever these issues are across the board that are creating these differences in 
education or post-secondary education, whatever, I'd like to see the issue resolved from the ground level. We need to figure out what the root cause is and help lift up these communities and provide resources for uh, fix the problem from the ground up, and it will inevitably fix the problems up the chain as well. You raise the critical problem. That is, you can't top-down fix disparities in representation. Because what happens is, if you let in students with lower metrics, they're out of sync with the average of the class. And when they're out of sync, we call that mismatch. And that being out of sync, in and of itself is a problem, meaning it's one thing to not have to have lower metrics. It suggests a, um, a, um, a lower level of preparedness for law school. But if you're out of sync, let's say you have a level of preparedness for a mid-level school and you get admitted to Harvard. Well, Harvard's going to be moving at a faster pace. So even though you're relatively well prepared for law school, not for Harvard level law school, so you've got to go to the school that is commensurate with your ability. And your ability is reflected in your LSAT scores and your undergraduate GPA. I've been researching these issues for, for years. And it's clear that mismatch, that is the distinction between where you are, however good or bad that may be, and the average of your class is critical in determining sex. Sex. Success. Uh, let's uh, take a break and we'll be back after these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Friday morning here on 101.1 FM. The answer in the studio, Hannah Webb Howard on the phone, Chris Corbett. We've got about seven minutes left to the show. Remember, I'll be back on from 9 to 10. The Dave Ellswick Show is back on today with Rob Steinbuck from 9 to 10. So stay tuned in during the interim time or tune back in up to you. But be sure to listen to me at 9 to 10 as well. It's going to be a great show then. We have a special guest. Law Professor Josh Silverstein will be joining us. And when he makes an appearance on the show, it's always interesting. So you're going to want to tune in for that. In the meantime, I want to talk about a, a potential case that Chris and I have forthcoming. And that is that ASU, your alma mater, uh, Hannah, uh, has a, a, um, an arena. Now, I'm not talking about the football stadium. They have a closed arena as well. And, of course, they have, uh, I suspect, basketball. I know they have volleyball that plays there. But they also do non-sporting events. They recently had a business expo there. And a fellow went in, uh, and he said, well, I've got my enhanced concealed carry license, and can I carry my gun in here? And they told him no. Well, guess what? That's against the law. Because an enhanced concealed carry licensee can carry in any government building, um, bar a few, and this ain't one of them. And so what are the exceptions? Well, one exception that would potentially have some relevance here is that a sporting event, a collegiate sporting event can get a special qualification from the state police and if they do so those sporting events can exclude people with concealed enhanced concealed carry licenses and so it seems to me i could be wrong i don't think i am by the way that asu uh, has decided that they're going to keep everybody out of the arena even during non-sporting events 
because that's what happened. There's no way you can characterize a business forum as a sporting event. Yet they had the same signs up that say no weapons. Sign really should say no concealed uh, guns, but in any event, no weapons. And they told the guy specifically he wasn't allowed in with his firearm and his enhanced concealed carry license. So we've gotten in touch with ASU. uh, And uh, Chris and I are going to be meeting with ASU uh, next Friday, in fact. Um, And I've already explained our position to them that, of course, what I said, they can't across the board exclude people from the arena for non-sporting events. They can't for sporting events. That's a law. And also, there was some question about whether, because they serve alcohol there, they can put up a sign that excludes uh, uh, people with guns. Because places that serve alcohol can generally put up a sign that excludes people with guns, except the very provision that says that says this does not apply to universities. So that one is out entirely. So we're going to meet with the ASU folks, and and I know the folks there, and they're nice people, and we get along generally. But I'm telling you this right now, Hannah. Chris, I don't need to tell because he's going to be on this case with me. Either they change what they're doing, or as we talked about earlier, when it comes to the Freedom of Information Act, Steinbuck is suing. Steinbuck is suing. It's that simple. Right. The, 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 the name of my firm, so to speak, I mean, the firm is me, right? But the name of my firm, which is just a label that I slap on it, is Steinbuck Impact Litigation. That, me, that phrase refers to the fact that I bring cases that make a difference. And and this case is going to make a difference because it's going to enforce the existing gun rights of Arkansans. Chris and I are the foremost authorities now in Arkansas on gun rights. We have three cases. This, there's a fair chance, will be the fourth case that we bring. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. We're fighting for our rights to carry. That's what we're fighting for every single day. And so... More than that. Go ahead, Chris. More than that, Rob. Yep. More than that, we're, we're fighting for a right to defend ourselves. Indeed, that's a very am, good point. I am tired of being disarmed by some government bureaucrat because he slaps a sign up on a building says, I can't carry. Like, what? Who's disarming me? Why? And then when you find out it's against the law, here's what it comes down to, Rob. It comes down to having a set of skills that we can do something about it. In turn, leads to we have a duty to do something about it because we can't. And we have the knowledge to do it. The same, the same set of values applies to what's going on at City Hall right now in Little Rock and these violations of your field of expert, the FOIA. They've got guys in there violating FOIA. These are licensed attorneys. They take an oath to defend the Constitution, and they're not doing their job. So when I walk up on the building and it says, you can't carry a weapon in here, my first thought is, okay, is this a public building? Yeah. Who's putting the sign up? And now we've gotten to a point where we're just going to do something about it. That's right. That's right. Because that's what we do, right? Yeah. Uh, the the legislature can pass the laws, but if nobody enforces those laws, then they don't do any good. And the only way to enforce these laws is to have public interest private attorneys like us go after these localities and state entities at time. That's right. Well, and, and for regular citizens that, that want to follow the law carry a concealed weapon. Um, you know, I think you know, the Supreme Court's got a big case right now. Whether or not attorneys should take cases and take the risk 
maybe get attorney's fees. There's $18 million on the table yeah. here for these fine attorneys here in Conway, Denton and Zachary, trying to get fees for the highway department misspending money. They yeah. called them, got their hands slapped, and now they can't earn fees. Yeah. Maybe. Well, folks, that's the end of our uh, um, 8 o'clock hour, uh, um, or 7 o'clock hour, I guess, going into the 8 o'clock hour. Be sure to tune back in to the Dave Ellswick Show at 9 to 10, and you can hear me again, along with Josh Silverstein, uh, my colleague from the law school. Both of our views are our views alone. Thank you. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.